stand to your feet this morning to Colossians chapter 1. We're just going to read the first three verses. Or first two, sorry. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Lord, I pray that we would, as we begin this study in Colossians, that you would make your word a delight of our hearts as we've been reading in Psalm 119. And that as your word becomes a greater delight, we would see the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ in the book of Colossians. Pray, Lord, that as we do and hear what the times were like in Colossians uh, when this letter was written, I pray, Lord, that it would give us a greater understanding of your word. But, Lord, help us above all things to rely on your Holy Spirit to hear your word, to understand your word, and to apply it to our lives. Lord, give us a greater and greater love for you and for, for your work on the cross for us. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a new series. I was just thinking about the series of sermons that I've done since I've been here. And um, the first sermon that we did or the first series was Romans, which focused on primarily, not totally, but the book of Romans is a, really it's a gospel presentation, right? It's a gospel presentation that brings a change of life, and a life that is changed by the gospel of Christ. Then we did the sermon series in Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and seeing how we as a church need those gifts at a constant time. We, we need them to grow in the way that God has called us. And to balance that out, we moved to Psalm 119, where we started preaching through the value of God's Word. Because if we just focus on spiritual gifts and we forget the Word of God, what will happen? Abuse of the spiritual gifts. And we've seen that happen. And I believe, I know I have seen an increase in my own life of a delight for God's Word through our time in Psalm 119. I'm desiring even more. But I began to think about, well, why is God's Word so delightful? Why should it be so delightful to us? And it's because of what Colossians is written for, to show the sufficiency of Christ. That's why God's Word is so beautiful, is because it is God's letter, it is God's writing to us about what He's going to do, if you're looking in the Old Testament, to what He did in Christ. And here in Colossians, Paul is writing to these people because they need to know what um, is most important. It's kind of hard to see on this map if you turn back there, Joe. Um, but Colossia, Colossae is right here. 
So you can see way over here is Ephesus. Laodicea is just north of it. And there was a road that goes all the way over to Lystra. And so Colossae is located in what's called the Lycus Valley, which there was a river there. And it was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Um, it used to be a, a really big city, but unfortunately, because of the Roman, when the Romans came, they changed the way that the road, the east-west road went. And Laodicea ended up being on that road instead of Colossae. And so, because of that, Colossae lost its prominence in uh, this area, but it still was a prime area for growing crops, which ended up being a great area for grazing and raising cattle, or sheep, sorry. And so the, there was a big wool industry and, and clothing made from wool, and they dyed that cloth. Um, and they actually think it was a purple color, not quite like um, elsewhere, but each region had a different dyeing technique. Um, so Colossae was 10 to 12 miles from Laodicea, which was north of the Lycus River. And just on the south of the Lycus River was a town called Hierapolis. Um, and they kind of faced each other on either side. If you can imagine the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul, or very similar, just facing one another, Louisville and New Albany, just right across the river from one another. Um, so you could actually visit all three of these places within a day, walk even walking or on a horse. Um, so it's very that's that's why in the book of Colossians, Paul says, "Hey, share this letter." with the church in Laodicea, and you all read the letter I've written to them. Again, this was, a, this was the, at one point, this city was the main city between essentially the west, or the, like Syria, to the east, Ephesus and cities along the coast. And so you have people talking about Stopping here, even Xerxes, when he came and lost at, um, how do you say that, Thermopylae, in that battle, when he lost to the Greeks there, he actually passed through the city and, and actually talked about how beautiful it was, Colossae. And, he all, and then Cyrus also stopped there on his way and failed to tempt to take Greece. And then another lesser known um, ruler, Pliny the Younger. I don't know if you know much history, but he was also a great ruler. And all of these men actually stopped in Colossae on their way to and from battle. And so it wasn't, at one point, it was a very populous and uh, magnificent city. But by the time of Paul, that, had, that was no longer the case. It was a small city. And if you go back to the slide, the first slide, Joe, that little mound there is, is probably the site of the temple in Colossae. So there's, Laodicea has tons and tons of ruins above ground, and it's been excavated, but Colossae is not very much. I didn't realize that this region was so mountainous. 
Um, can you? I, I was just thinking about here. Paul's traveling from Israel, generally on foot. Maybe he had a horse at some point, but mostly on foot through these kinds of areas. Though he did not visit Colossae, according to um, what he says, he doesn't know the people of Colossae. But by the time of Paul, uh, J.B. Lightfoot says, without a doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of Paul is addressed. So by size, it was one of the least important. It's interesting, Paul says in this letter to Colossae that he also wrote a letter to Laodicea, but we don't have that letter, which is interesting. Why the one to Colossae was preserved. We know it's God's work to preserve his word, but it's really interesting that, you know, Paul wrote many letters, not just to the churches that we have in our Bible. He, he wrote many letters, but God made sure that the church preserved the ones that were meant for us to read today. So as we begin this series in Colossians I like to have this context. I, I know that it may not interest some, but I, I think it helps us understand what that city is like. It's, it's a diminishing city, so there's not a lot of um, people coming in and out, but they're so close to, for lack of a better word, cosmopolitan cities like Laodicea that had a lot of travelers with goods and services coming through, and so a lot of... Um, ideas being spread there in Laodicea, and, and they're so close, it's very easy for them to begin to hear and to, to believe things that are, are whether true or, or untrue. Um, so we, we believe that this letter, we editorially, most commentators believe this book was probably, or this letter was written in... Um, around 58 to 60 A.D. Because in 60 to 61 A.D., there was an earthquake, and it essentially leveled the city of Colossae, and they never really rebuilt it. Some people stayed in the area, but for the most part, they left and moved to cities that were nearby instead of rebuilding the city. Um, So... As we move forward, thinking about reasons for writing, it's really important to think about this. Why did Paul write the letter? Was it uh, an encouragement? Was it a um, this? You know, we, when we write to someone, we have a purpose, right? We we'll write a thank you note. We want to thank them for what they've done, or or we write them an encouragement. We hear they're 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 not doing well, or they lost a loved one. Um, unfortunately, we don't write like the early church did, or even the generation before my generation did. I think it would be a good idea to, to start that back up. But we don't, unfortunately, write as much as the prior generation did. So it's it's more difficult to ex- explain a letter. But let's just let's just take this to an email. So in your life, you, you have to write emails, especially those that are more my generation, for a purpose. You know, it might be business. I need to let this customer know 
that this is going on or I might need to talk to this supplier and, and find out why am I not receiving these things. Those are all business related. But in this letter, Paul is concerned for the church in Colossae because he's hearing things. And where has he heard them? Well, I believe he's heard them from Epaphras. And Epaphras is mentioned multiple times here in the book of Colossae. And if you'll look with me at the last chapter, verse 12. So in this section, Paul's talking to them about people he knows and and people he wants to greet. And at this point, he says, Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, which is interesting. Where else does Paul use this phrase, bond slave? Do you remember? Romans chapter 1. He used it to describe himself. So Paul is giving Epaphras the same title that he gave himself. So he's saying, Epaphras is much like me. Maybe not an apostle, but he is a bond slave. He is serving God with his life. His life is the Lord's. Bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And we've talked about all three of these cities. And it is believed that Epaphras may have been the man who founded the church at Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Because Paul says, though I don't know you, in one section of Colossae, or the book of Colossians. So it's very thought that Epaphras is the man who founded the churches, brought the gospel to these places, and that is why there's even churches there. And um, that's why he's concerned. And I believe that Paul, Epaphras came to Paul, and it's likely he came to Paul because he was concerned about what was being taught or being received by some in the church. And I don't think this problem was only in Colossae. It's likely that the letter to Laodicea that we don't have had some similar warnings. Because, just think about it, how quickly do ideas transfer or thoughts, especially when a church has contact? It's not like these churches didn't have any contact with one another. Through Epaphras, they did. And so they had relationships, and, and any bad teaching or good teaching could have been passed along. Just think about our church in, and the church in Virginia and, and then other church in Milwaukee. There, at one point when our pastors were all alive, there was a lot of conversation going on between the churches. And that's hundreds of miles apart. So just imagine when you're only a 10 or 12 mile walk. Um, so it's believed, and I, I, I tend to agree with this, that Epaphras was the one who founded these churches, and Epaphras went to Paul with his concerns for them. And 
it seems that this recent issue is a an arising heresy which combined Jewish traditionalism or, or an, a, a strongly orthodox Jewish belief with Eastern mystic speculation. And you say, well, what does that what does that mean? So essentially it's like a Jewish mysticism, which mystics are very much so in an ascetic lifestyle, very, you know, we've got to take all the comforts out of our life. We need to be very um, rid of anything that would distract us from knowing God. No, no, essentially, <laughs> it's, it's similar to the people nowadays who are minimalists. Not that, I'm not saying that minimalists are not believers, okay? But they think that getting everything out of their life will help them have a better relationship with God. If that's your reason to be a minimalist, I would warn you that's not, uh, that's not going to lead to a closer relationship with the Lord. But the key passage, I believe, in the book of Colossians that helps us see why Paul wrote this letter is here in verse 8 of chapter 2. So if you turn with me at, to chapter 2, verse 8, this will actually be our first sermon when I get back from South Africa. I'm actually going to start there and then go through the book of Colossians because I believe we need to know what the error is and see how Paul is responding to it leading up to this section and after this section. So in Colossians uh, chapter 2, and verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men. So we, we're seeing here a, a molding together of philosophical thought. So it's, it may even be that there's some influence from Greek philosophy. We don't know exactly what's going on, because even... Many, many scholars, I've read at least four commentaries on this particular idea, and I'll be reading even more in the next two weeks while I'm gone. But no one can pinpoint, oh, this is a specific heresy or group that we can... But it was a mixture of these ideas and thoughts that was coming about. So we're seeing philosophy, some empty deception, some lies, and this applies to today. How many people are buying into philosophy that are not according to Scripture? It sounds good. It generally meets the muster of Scripture, but they're off. They're missing the point. So philosophy, empty deception, according to the tradition of men. So we see a, a traditionalism here. They're, they're trying to get people to go into a tradition, not a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, according to elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So his, his whole issue is that these philosophies, these deceptions, these traditions of men and the, and the principles of this world are in direct conflict with Christ. That is the problem. So he is going to, in this book, or this letter, to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ. And so my title 
for this sermon series as a whole is All-Sufficient Savior. That's why I've titled it, because I believe that this is what Paul is going to say to us through these weeks. Yes, there will be points in this sermon series where we don't necessarily see the all-sufficiency of Christ. Not that we're degrading it, but he'll have an emphasis on something about Christ that will be added to and build up the sufficiency of Christ to us. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, For in him, this is really, really important, he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, wow, that statement is, we could spend a whole series on that alone. We're not going to. But just that statement that in Christ... The fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Christ is the form of God in the flesh. There's nowhere else in the the letters of Paul that he is so overtly proclaiming Jesus is God. Not that he doesn't say it elsewhere, but right here you cannot deny that he's saying that Jesus is God. And so, in the book of Colossians, we see the strongest argument by Paul for the deity and the all-sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus, our Lord. He continues, he says, For in Him you have been made complete, complete in Him, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So I think he's dealing with some Jews who are wanting to circumcise as well. This is where I say Jewish traditionalism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Sounds very similar to Romans. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having concealed the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And he goes on, he says, Therefore... No one is to act as a judge in regard to food or drink or in respect of festival or new new moon or Sabbath day. So what's he dealing with? He's dealing with some people who are trying to get them to follow Jewish holy days and festivals. He goes on, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Or another word for that. Or self-humility. So essentially, putting themselves down. And the worship of angels. So this is very mystical religion right here. This kind of 
beating yourself down and making yourself humble of humble estate, very similar to the later monks. Unfortunately, I don't think they read the book of Colossians because that would have negated what they were doing. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. These people are having mystical visions. They're worshiping angels. They're very, uh, very much similar to Catholic mystics. I don't know if you've read much of, of some of them, but very much so a mystical uh, belief system. And not, and listen, this is the issue, and not holding fast to the head. What head is he talking about? Christ, right? He says, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with growth which is from God. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Well, judgments, right? He says, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Very legalistic mindset, very traditional Jewish orthodox. Which all refer to the things destined to perish with us in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. Why are you doing this? Why, why are you going back to man's traditions instead of following Christ Jesus who is supreme? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What's he saying? You can do all these things. You can rid yourself of these things, the comforts of life. You can try to abuse your own body. And we've heard about things like that, right? Where you beat yourself and... Honestly, it reminds me much of Baal worship. You can, you can hurt your own body and, and even do these things because you, in self-made religion, it makes sense. Oh yeah, this will, this will lead to a closer relationship with the Lord. I know it, for us it doesn't make sense because we've been taught rightly. But if, if, I, if I do that, then I'll have something. But he's saying, no, that's... That doesn't fix the problem. Why? Because beating your body will not rid you of the, the heart problem that's causing you to live in sin. Right? You can lock yourself in a cage, but that's not going to deal with the issue of lust. Because it's a heart problem. It's not just a physically, bodily issue. We are embodied souls. That's what God created us to be. You can't divorce the two. You can't just deal with the physical body and hope that that changes you. That's what essentially Paul is saying here. You're trying to deal with the outward and God has already done that in Christ on the inside. And it starts on the inside. This section here of Colossians should be, as Christians, our Strongest argument against being a monk or a nun. Because those both are 
What, what, are, what are the monks and nuns doing? They're trying to get closer to God by maybe uh, not even speaking. You know, there's monasteries where you don't even speak. Well, somehow that's going to get you closer to God. Tell you what, it's not. God is de- deals in the heart and the outward comes with that. It doesn't start the other way around. Because that is working your way. You think that, well, if I do this, then, then God will accept me. Let me ask you all, you know, this is something that's a little bit more common in Christian circles. When you fall into sin, how often do you feel like, well, I can't go back to God right now because I haven't really seen a transformation of myself. So I'm going to essentially punish myself. You know, I, I need to read the Bible a lot and I need to pray a lot before I can go to God and ask for forgiveness. Have, it, have any of you done that? I have. And that's what the devil wants. He knows the longer that you're away from the Lord, the longer that you spend trying to fix yourself, the longer you will remain in sin. The longer you will remain unrepentant. Because I know that feeling. Because I would feel that way and then I would fall back into sin because I was trying to earn my way back. And it's when I realized that I was doing that that God really transformed my relationship with Him. That I could have that fellowship even when I was struggling that I could return to Him and say, Lord, I am, I am not worthy of my own Strength to stand before you, but you gave me Christ. We don't realize how subtly we are very similar to monks and nuns if we're not careful in the way that we deal with sin in our lives. So Paul is dealing with this issue, and we see that strongly here from verse 8 all the way to verse 23. So that is the reason that he's writing. And I think another reason is Epaphras had told him that this was going on. And it's believed that at this time Paul wrote the book of Philemon as well. Because Philemon is mentioned in chapter 4 of Colossians. I was trying to find... I forgot to write down the reference. I believe it was four. Sorry, Onesimus is mentioned, which is the slave of Philemon. And it's, it's possible... Well, look at me with at verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart. So Tychicus is bringing the letter, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who was one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation. So, these are the two men who are bringing the letter to Colossae. And Onesimus was the slave, 
If you look at the book of Philemon with me quickly, I know this is not necessarily spiritual conversation. I think it is somewhat, but it's really interesting when you start studying a book of the Bible and see how they're so tied together and the relationships that God has in them. So if I sound excited, it's because I am, but uh, I understand if it's not so exciting to you. But when I discovered that Philemon and they were the same, we're just going to read the letter really quickly because it will affect uh, Colossians. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Paphia, her sis- our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the gr- church in your house. So, it's very likely that the church at Colossae met in Philemon's house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love, of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may be, become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've come to you to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, so he, Paul is about to ask him to do something, but he's not going to command it. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the age and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So Onesimus... Same Onesimus from the end of Colossae, the book of Colossians. Who formerly was unless to you, was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So apparently Onesimus was a very bad slave. We'll see that. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that, I, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So Paul felt like he could have ordered Philemon to let Onesimus be just a brother and serve Paul in Rome likely, but he didn't. He, he asked that he would do it out of his own free will. For perhaps he was in this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and the Lord. So Onesimus left Philemon a, slave, a, a bad, wicked slave, and he came back to Philemon because Paul sent him as a faithful slave still, at that point, and brother in Christ. So in some way, Onesimus got connected to Paul and became a Christian with Paul. If then you regard me as a partner, accept me as you would. But 
if I if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. So it's very likely that Philemon was brought to Christ through the witness of Paul. Though Paul has not been to Colossae, Philemon must have traveled somewhere or met Paul somewhere in his travels. Yes, brother, let my benefit from you in the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. <laughs> it's funny. Paul is saying, I want you to do it of your free will. And he's like, I know you will, because you're a brother in Christ. But finally in 22, I... At the same time, also prepare my lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. It's interesting, all these names that are mentioned in verse 23 and 24 are also mentioned at the end of the book of Colossians, which is why... Most commentators and I have come to the opinion that they were written at the same time. And that they were both delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus for Paul. So it's interesting. Talk about a redemption story. Onesimus the slave comes to Christ and God through Paul is encouraging Philemon to give him freedom to serve the Lord as God's servant now instead of his slave. I don't know. That was Maybe we should just do a sermon on Philemon, but maybe that will be down the road. But anyways, we, I, think we're, I hope we're seeing a picture of what's going on and that Paul is, is writing both these letters at the same time and so we'll go back to the beginning of the letter that we just read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. And I want to address something that I think is really ridiculous. But there are many scholars, mostly liberal, who will deny the authenticity of Colossians. And most of those same people deny that the book should be even in the Bible. And by authenticity, they deny that Paul wrote the, the letter, the majority of them. And if Paul didn't write it, then it shouldn't be in the Bible. And I think this is a direct attack against the supremacy of Christ. That's why I think it's not. most people don't want to do it. But... These, these objections were never raised, never, 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 never raised in the church until the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So in almost 2,000 years of church history, it wasn't until we became extremely intelligent Christians that we started to, trying to say that Scripture, that Colossians shouldn't be in Scripture. And so I... I totally disagree with that. I don't think there's any legitimacy, but I do want to give you a couple reasons, a few reasons why I disagree with that statement. First, the letter claims to be written by Paul 
twice, and it includes the names of many of his friends and disciples. If you're going to throw out Colossians, you might as well throw out Philemon because he uses the same names. And he says, I wrote it. Pretty easy argument, I think. Secondly, the church history argument I just gave you. There's no tradition until this idea of text criticism. And that that came in through German um, seminaries, Western seminaries that were embracing, in some places, Marxism and, and other liberal theologies. And they, what they do is, the, the majority of people who argue against it, they say, well, the letter of Colossians doesn't sound like Paul because it's not like the other letters of Paul, which is completely untrue. We've already read some things that sound exactly like Romans. But Paul isn't writing to the Romans. He's wrote, writing to a different group of people with a different need and with a different purpose. His letter is not going to sound identical to Romans or to... Philippians or Ephesians or Corinthians or whomever. So I, 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 they start doing statistics. Oh, how many times did, God, did Paul use this letter? Or, um, For example, in the book of Colossians, there's lots of words that are only used once in the New Testament and they're only used in Colossians. And they say, well, because these words are only used in these places, then, then we should throw it out. Well, I totally disagree. Because he's dealing with a specific issue. And I believe that Paul is using specific language to destroy the work of Satan in Colossae through these deceptive lies. And I, uh, I could not find a single argument that I felt was even significant enough. And fourthly, well thirdly, I talked about the close connection with Philemon. If you can't have Philemon, you've got to throw them both out. And no one, no one, even these scholars who disagree with Colossians, all of them believe that Philemon is authentic. It's like, what? I don't understand this. But I think it's the doctrine that's taught here that they don't want. To be honest, I think it's what the devil wants. And fourthly, but not last, the church... The New Testament church did not, didn't accept letters that used pseudonyms in books. So a lot of people will say, well, Paul isn't actually writing, it's somebody else using his name. There are multiple examples that I have found through the help of one of my church history professors on one of them where they threw out a book that somebody tried to to say this should be a part of the canon because the, somebody used a pseudonym and they knew and no one would attest to the fact that that book was written by that person. God will not allow a, a book that's to be falsely labeled. Why would God allow lies to be his means of bringing about his word? He protects that. And so... You've probably not hit, heard any arguments against Colossians. I just want, wanted to give you the fact that some people are, so you're not surprised if some, at some point in your life you, are encountered, you encounter that. So, as I said, I believe that this, this letter is written to refute the errors 
that can be attributed to a, a Jewish traditionalism and, and Eastern mysticism together. And he's doing that through proclaiming the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. So, we've got two verses. You probably thought, how is he going to get two, get that much of a sermon out of two verses? Well, we're almost, <laughs> we're almost there. So he starts, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I think this is very important to note. He says this differently than he does in any other letter. You know, some letters he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. But he, he almost always emphasizes that I'm an apostle. But in this case, he says, by the will of God, not my will. Not initially. Remember, I was going to Damascus. I was, I was going to Damascus to kill Christians and put them in jail. It wasn't my will. It was God's will that saved me. It was the grace of God, if, if we could say that here. He was an apostle by choice or by the will of Peter or whomever the other apostles were. His Apostleship was by the will of God. God is the one who chose him. God is the one who gifted him. And God is the reason that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is, this is a supreme picture of humility, I, I believe. This is why I have a great issue with all these men, and especially in Latin America, this is going around like wildfire. They have a, an apostle round table in Guatemala. And uh, if you're sitting at the table, you're an apostle. I don't know how they know they're an apostle. Um, but most of the people... So, I had an example. One time I, w I was going to a church in the town where I learned Spanish and it was back in my single days. And I really liked the church. I was surprised. The music wasn't really, really loud. It was actually almost Western. If you've ever been to Latin America, that is a miracle. So you know. Typically in the church, you're trying to understand the words because they're so loud you can barely hear them. This church, the musicians were incredible, like just... It was beautiful. Honestly, the, the music was beautiful. And so I really liked the church. And they believed in the gifts of the Spirit. Like, man, this is... I didn't know such churches existed in Guatemala. Well, unfortunately, they might have had good music, but their theology was really warped. Because one day this American came, and he... Start off the sermon saying, I'm apostle so-and-so. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> What's this going to be like? And I'll be honest, I have never, 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 and this includes people that I know are famous in the U.S. I've never heard somebody who was so prideful in his preaching. Essentially, the whole sermon was about things he did as an apostle. He brought Christmas back to Cuba, the tree. 
That's, that was one of his claims to fame. And I could not believe... The, the bad thing is I had to hear it in English, then I had to hear it in Spanish, so I heard it twice. <laughs> so I couldn't confuse it. Well, I could have maybe some Spanish, but the English was... Between the two, I, I heard this sermon twice, and that was the last time I ever went there. But... Um, but there are people like that running around. They're not, they're not in it to glorify Christ. They're in it to glorify themselves. And Paul here is starting this letter saying, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus Christ. And he starts the letter about the sufficiency of Christ by saying, it's his will that I'm an apostle, not mine. I'm a nobody. He didn't exactly say that, but I'm reading between the lines. Paul is beginning the letter in humility because he knows that only Christ can be the center of the church and the head of the church. And he goes on, he says, And Timothy, my, our brother. So he's with Timothy. It's, it's thought that possibly Timothy wrote and Paul um, articulated what he wanted written. So Paul was kind of like a scribe for him. We don't know for certain because he doesn't say that. And he doesn't say in this letter, by my own hand, or so-and-so is writing for me, because he does say that sometimes. So it's, it's, it, I, I do think that Timothy was writing it out for Paul, and Paul was, um, I guess he was transcribing it. What do you call it when dictating? That's the word. I, my, my brain is mush right now, but... So he's dictating to Timothy those, those words. I, I, I think that probably is the case. So that's his greeting. This, this is who's writing this to you. And then here in verse 2, we see kind of a to whom it's written. You know, like, dear so-and-so. It says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So here we get the whom. The saints, well... They had saints back then? I thought you had to go through like this whole confirmation thing to become a saint. Well, Paul, Paul, you're, you're ahead of the times. How come I don't know about St. Edna from Colossae? I don't know if they had a name like that, but I'm, I'm, making, I'm being a little facetious. Forgive me. But to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, this is, this is proof that you can be a saint... While you live. Not because you're perfect, but because Christ has transformed you. He's called you to be holy. Saint comes from the same word in, in Latin for holy. You know what the Spanish word for holy is? Anyone, anyone here? Santo. Same word. So... A saint is someone who's holy, set apart to the Lord. That's what he's saying. To you who are set apart to the Lord, who are serving God. Literally, we could say, holy ones. Oh, come on, Paul. Let's not talk about holy ones. No, he's saying the, the, the brothers and sisters in Christ there who are holy set apart to God, and their faithful brethren in Christ. This letter, unlike the letter to Galatia, 
is much calmer, for lack of better. I believe that Epaphras is saying, there are some people who are starting to wonder about these teachings, and they're, they're, they might be going that way, but I don't think they had full-fledged jumped overboard. Because the way Paul writes to Galatia is much more stern, much more, oh, you foolish Galatians. You don't see that in the book to Colossae, or the letter to Colossae. So, he leads up to his admonition with lots of description of men who are truly following Christ. They're holy ones, they're faithful. And then he offers a blessing over them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. What a blessing that would be to have that prayed over you as a church. Very similar to the, the blessing of Aaron over the people of Israel. God's peace and his blessing over the church. This is a standard greeting. But it's not standard because Paul is making it clear that he is not an apostle because he's somebody, but because God chose him. It was actually in opposition to what he was wanting to do. And then he's describing the people as set-apart ones, holy ones, who are faithful brethren in Christ. And he leaves them with a blessing of grace and peace. I know we had a lot of facts and information today, and I know those sermons sometimes aren't as exciting. They are to me, because I believe when we understand why and, and how, we can have a greater understanding. Though, I will say this, we can't put too much emphasis on understanding the context of a passage and the, the history, because there are many people who have been touched by God's Word. The Holy Spirit does not need facts and information to make God's Word clear to us and apply applicable to us. But if God has given us the information to do, I do believe we should share it. I know I'm, I lean more, more towards being a teacher than a preacher, I think. I don't know. Y'all can decide. But... Um, because I want you to have the same information I have as best as possible. Because you're a believer. You have a responsibility for your own lives and, and for the men, the, the leadership of your homes, your business where you work. And so, um, I'm not a spiritual guru, so don't follow me. Like Paul said, I'm apostle... You know, I'm, I'm here preaching because I believe God has me here. There's no other reason for me to be here. And Christ must be the head of this church right here. If he's not the head of this church, then I can check out right now. This is not about me. So let's pray.